So, mm. uh, I'm looking forward to you coming down. Well, this is just a couple of weekends away now, isn't it? Are you going to come and see you? I know. It's beautiful. I, uh, mm. You know, I'm getting things ready. The garden's looking good. I'm, obviously, I'm particularly keen for you to see my morning glory. Uh, <laughs> spectacular at this time of year. I, as I recall, they're spectacular all year round. Well, <laughs> which I shall take photos of them. I think. Yes, do I shall put some photos up on Facebook for the listeners. Yeah, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Welcome everybody to episode one hundred and sixty-six of. <laughs> Joe, is, it's Joe all, is laughing at me because it's it, already gone wrong. Because <laughs> oh, if you open with such ridiculous innuendo, it just goes downhill. It does. I apologize. Episode 166 of the Mid Faith Crisis podcast. Uh, my name's Nick Page. There is Joe Davis trying to keep it all together. <laughs> my name's Kenneth Williams. Stop making well, the mouth. thing is about the thing is about gardening is it is a kind of innuendo laden, sort of, you know, thing. Because you know you should see my nasturtiums. Um, anytime you say anything like that, exactly. Yes, it's true. Anyway, come on, let's be serious for any new listeners that are listening because of John Philip Newell. Oh yeah, so this episode we have a mm. uh, an extensive. I think it's fair to say. Interview yes. with John Philip Newell. Yes, wonderful. Um, very hmm. interesting interview. And uh, so we're not going to talk about the interview this week uh, because no. the interview itself is quite long. So we'll come back on it next week. Yes, and uh, obviously, if you, yeah. as uh, as one of our seventeen listeners, have any feelings on it, uh, do do get in touch. Yes, uh, let us know. Please do. Um, yeah. In the meantime, how are you doing? How are you doing, mate? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm in, enjoying. I'm, I'm enjoying fits of good weather, isn't it? It's just you know raining and sunny. But in the sun, I've been going up to the local woods and seeing so many butterflies. So that has been mm. particularly joyful uh, for me, uh, including white admirals, which I hope to show you when you come down and stay. And gosh, have I got to look at your white admirals? You as have well as your morning glories, and also my fertility is particularly magnificent <laughs> oh, this no. time of year. Yeah. Not like well, we shall S- dance around those silver washed fritillaries. Yes, indeed. Yes, so that's great. And also, I tell you what has been wonderful has been uh, a couple of emails in from listeners about you know how do you deal with you know the bad news and the backdrop mm. of constantly mm. bad news. And uh, we've had some great emails on that. We won't share them this week. We'll, we'll do those at a later time. But thank you for those. And please keep sending them in. Joe at midfaithcrisis.org. Um, love to hear your views on that. And also the upcoming interview. Anyway, so that's that. And what about you? How are you? What's going on? Uh, so I'm all right. I'm, just, I'm quite busy and uh, uh, sort of battling on through. Uh, I'm going to see a film tonight. Are you? What, in the cinema? Well, in... in uh, the theatre Chipping Norton they show oh, right. films okay and this is chosen by my wife and it's mm. called The Truffle Hunters and it's basically a documentary about Italian dogs <laughs> um, sounds I, fabulous I sh- you know I, we're so we're so mm. well matched you are you know, sh- she likes to watch those kinds of arty films in with <laughs> subtitles I like to watch John Wick 3 you know that's yeah. how it goes really <laughs> I saw a great film this week, by the way. Have you seen it? Nomadland. 
No, have I haven't seen, seen it. it. It's profoundly mm. moving, and I shall probably make you watch it when you come down and stay. Okay. Mm. I'll say no more about it now. Look forward to that. I mean, <laughs> is your little cinema opened yet? It is open. I haven't been brave enough to go back yet. I I feel I should, but I'm still, you know, the infection rate is still a little bit high. Yeah. A bit, I'm a bit ooh and I'm a bit ah about going to the but cinema. They mm. haven't put their prices up to like what, £3.75 or something. No, certainly not. No. Oh, good. No. Um, yeah, apart from that, I'm, I'm enjoying, still enjoying the Olympics. Did you watch the oh, sport yeah. climbing? Yes! That, like the ridiculous speed thing. They they it's, climb up and they hold on. There's this girl and she holds on and hangs there by two fingers. I mean, I can do things with two fingers, but they're not very helpful to mankind. You know? I mean, I make gestures, but I can't hang on to anything. But the strength I know. is astonishing. It is. Uh, yeah, so I'm enjoying that. Um, but other than that, I feel, yeah, I feel a little bit um, busy, really. Yeah. So. Well, do you know, that's interesting because that is the one thing I'm really nervous about now. Mm. Lockdown is easing that sort of I, I don't want to go back to the busyness of mm. pre-lockdown. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm actually preaching this weekend in a church, you know, uh, I don't want to listen to me, let alone other people. Anyway, I'm sure <laughs> yeah. it'll be all right. So we should get on because this interview. Yes, said yes, 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 yes. It is. It is. So, yes. so, so set this up for us, Joe. Well, uh, there is a wonderful man, and his name is John Philip Newell. He wrote a book uh, that I loved called "The Rebirthing of God" a few years back. Uh, that was very helpful, and he's written a new book called "Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul." And what he's trying to do in this book is is just show how relevant, really these ancient teachings from the Celtic tradition are to today's world. And he does that through sort of going through sort of saints and people who, um, you know, from history who have, have been, you know, sort of wandering Celtic teachers or Peregrini, as I discovered we may call them, um, mm. and, and others. And uh, it's, it's just a great read. And for me, it solidified this growing sense of, you know, Everything is spiritual. All things are connected. All life is sacred. Everything bears something of the divine. All living things do. So for me, um, reading this book was a sort of, you know, a real marker in the sand as sort of my theological journey, really, and, and where I've got to. So I found it supremely helpful. And as normal, um, I was, you know, very enthusiastic to, to ch chat to John Philip. Well, friends, I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast this time, uh, John Philip Newell. John Philip is an author and, uh, well, again, as I have said so many times, he feels like a really dear friend, though we have never met, but I know you through your writings. John Philip, welcome to the Mid-Faith Crisis podcast. Thank you, Gerald. So good to be with you. Thank you. And thanks so much for taking time out of, I, I'm quite certain, a busy calendar, uh, having released a new book. But for, just for those people who perhaps haven't heard of you or come across you before, uh, please, can you just introduce yourself? Yes, I, I describe myself as a wandering scholar in, in that ancient tradition of uh, wandering Celtic teachers over the centuries. And uh, my the heart, the heart of my conviction uh, that I try to convey in my work of teaching and my work of pilgrimage leading to Iona and elsewhere mm. is really the theme that I uh, focus on in the book, and that is the sacredness of the earth and mm. the sacredness of every human being. 
and um, I'm, I see myself as a voice uh, calling us to awaken again to that sacredness and mm. to live into the radical implications of what that means. Mm. Mm. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And whereabouts am I speaking to you uh, from at the moment? Well, I know I'm speaking to you from my from my <laughs> office, but where are you? <laughs> yes, well, I, I believe I'm in Edinburgh. Um, Excellent. This is, this is a family home. Uh, we live uh, just on the edge of the botanical gardens in Edinburgh, which is a great blessing to be able to gaze out from my window over a lot of green space, even though it's quite a busy street on the other side. So uh, this is family home. This is my oh. base for uh, for writing as well. And um, I suppose the, the the place of the home of my heart is the, the island of Iona in the Western oh. Isles of Scotland. And that's where I do quite a bit of work every oh. year. That is in a typical year. Uh, oh. This hasn't been a, a typical one um, in terms of people being able to travel internationally, but that's a, a sacred oh. place to me. Mm. And you were warden there for a while, is that right? Well, uh, we were the, we were the wardens of Iona Abbey. Yeah, and uh, I I say we. It was a a role I shared with my wife Ali, and uh, the warden is one who wards or watches over the life of the community, so mm. has both spiritual and temporal uh, concerns. Mm organizing prayer on the one hand, uh, right through to uh, the details of, of how to keep a big operation going with uh, at times a hundred guests and thousands mm. of visitors passing through. So it was a very formative time in, in my life, uh, living in the Hebrides of Scotland. And that was really when I began to access this stream of spirituality that we sometimes refer to as Celtic spirituality. And I realized here's some treasure for today because Mm. it is is an stream that makes a profound connection between spirit and matter. And uh, in this time of earth consciousness, the Celtic Mm. wisdom, I believe, has some profound offerings for us. Mm. Well, and how, and I cannot tell you how much I love the new book. I really do. But before we come on to that, and I've got questions, I want to take you back to your last book. I think it was your last one, The Rebirthing of God, that book anyway. And uh, I mean, so from the introduction, I knew I was going to love this book because you were talking about what you see uh, coming. Yeah, And I quote, we are living in the midst of the great turd falling. <laughs> I knew from that sentence onward I was going to love this book so much. So for, for those listeners who haven't read The Rebirthing of God, do you still see a great turd falling? <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, it, it, and it's not just falling, it's already smashed into the, uh, the spire of the cathedral and, and the walls mm. of Christianity as we have known it are crumbling. Mm. Um, so a little bit of background on, mm. on the turd. Um, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it comes out of uh, an account that Carl Jung, the, the founder of analytical psychology, records uh, as a 12-year-old boy uh, walking home from school in Basel, Switzerland. Uh, he became aware of an image that so disturbed him that mm. he pushed it back down into the unconscious, tried to push it back down, 
but just kept coming coming up. And when finally he speaks about it and he doesn't have the, the sort of courage to share it publicly and in his writings until he's in his 60s, and he describes that what he saw on that day was uh, the throne of God above the spire of Basel Cathedral and descending from the throne was a great turd that smashed into the spire and the walls of the cathedral crumbled. And uh, I use that image as a way of speaking of the collapse of Christianity as we have known it. And uh, that, that book really explores what I believe uh, our, our deep response to this moment in time needs to be. I mean, there are other responses. I think uh, some of what we hear uh, within the church is a denial that the great turd is falling mm, um, yeah. and, and a saying, well, yeah, maybe we're in trouble, but we just need a bit of window dressing. You know, we just need to spruce things up and work harder. And I don't think that's the way forward. Mm. Um, I think uh, there's large-scale denial of the collapse that we're, we're in the midst of, and I don't think that's the way either. And I uh, pursue what I believe is the third response, the deep response, and that is to say, what is the new thing that is trying to be born? Mm. Uh, what is trying to come forth from within the soul of our Christian household uh, from deep within each each of us as sons and daughters of the Christian household for, for this moment in time. So uh, it, it, is, it is a shocking image in many ways, uh, but I think it's the sort of shocking image that needs to be spoken uh, for uh, a rebirthing that's yearn, uh, yearning to happen. Uh, but I, I mean, I've had some wonderful uh, conversations in relation to Carl <laughs> yeah. and I. Ernest, uh, once I was uh, telling the story in the United States, and uh, a woman came up afterwards and said, um, now, I'd like to tell you that I've been a midwife for, uh, for 25, 30 years in my life, and I've noticed that uh, the turd nearly always comes before the birth. <laughs> and um, a, a, a very, um, a, yeah. a very helpful insight, and and that is that um, that it's it's uh, in a sense preparing the the birth canal, preparing the the, the passage, mm. and um, another funny s story to remember. <laughs> this is great. I'm loving it. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I was using this story and the image <laughs> with a group of uh, presentation sisters in Ireland. I love those sisters. You know, the, yeah. the sisters of the Roman Catholic community are so often uh, the ones who give me most hope for this mm. moment in time in, in our, our Christian tradition because mm. uh, they are faithfully and often disobediently getting on with what they believe they should be doing. And that mm. is making profound connection with the earth and um, in deep reverent relationship with the wisdom of other uh, great mm spiritual traditions and uh, I love them. Mm. So I, I was sharing this story and at the end of my talk, one of the sisters came up to me with a lovely Irish accent mm. saying, now, now John Philip, uh, what exactly is a turd? Um, <laughs> and uh, in, in part of the, uh, she wanted some clarification because of course in Ireland, 
the word T-H-I-R-D is also pronounced turd, you know, first, mm. second, turd. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so she, um, uh, she, she thought she was uh, clear enough, but she just wanted clarification. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from the sublime to the ridiculous. <laughs> so let's bring us back to the sublime. Um, you wrote this latest book, uh, which I'm so happy to have the actual copy of the book now rather than the PDF, and it's it's beautiful. Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul. I don't know why I'm showing it to you. You you know what it you know what it looks like, presumably. <laughs> and but it is lovely. Um, and I sort of I really want to start things off by saying why now? Why this book? What what's what was your thinking? What led to the writing of this for you? Well, uh, a couple a couple of things. Um by way of response. I mean, one, one is to say that this book has been with me for, for a long time mm. in, in the preparation. And uh, numbers of people uh, have on its release said, uh, what an extraordinarily uh, appropriate and timely uh, moment for, for this book to come out, uh, feeling that it, it speaks deeply into this moment of time uh, here we are still in pandemic mode and part of, I think, what, what we've been invited to wake up to more deeply during this uh, critical time is our awareness with the earth, how, how we wish to live, um, an awareness that is coming from biodiversity scientists, for instance, that uh, we, humanity, have been part of uh, cr creating this pandemic in, in terms of mm. creating chaos in the natural world uh, to the extent that uh, viruses are leaping from species to species uh, mm. created sort of chaos and madness in the natural world. Mm. And I, I believe that the, the book does belong uh, deeply to, to this particular moment in time. Mm. But in, in many ways, I, I can't take credit for it because um, I finished writing it really, really before the pandemic. Um, mm. And I've used this, the, the time of the pandemic when I haven't been able to travel uh, for my teachings or welcome groups to Iona. Um, I used the time to, um, to complete it, I think, to deepen some of the details, to mm. uh, refine the expressions. Um, but the book comes out of a particularly a teaching initiative that I began a number of years ago that we call the School of Earth and Soul. Uh, it was originally mm. called the School of Celtic Consciousness, in which we have been accessing the, the wisdom of great uh, Celtic Christian teachers over the centuries and bringing that wisdom to today mm. uh, to uh, challenge us to inspire uh, what we are to be in relationship to the earth, but also what we are to be uh, to, the, um, to the very heart of the human mystery of, uh, of every nation, every race, every gender, and every sexual orientation. Um, so the, the book grows out of a teaching initiative. And I, I would say that that's where all of my writing grows out of. It grows out of teaching and encounters uh, with people. I, I mean, I sometimes fantasize thinking, wouldn't it be nice just to hide away in my Highland cottage for the rest of my life and not get on another airplane and not mm. have to travel around? 
but but that is fantasy because that's never how I've how I've written. I've I've always found myself first and foremost exploring themes in live teaching contexts. Mm. It's so important for me uh, to see the light in people's eyes when connections are made and when I when I feel that the words I'm trying to offer are stirring in the soul of the listener. Um, I think it's also important, of course, in a live context to see people's eyes glazing over. Um, mm, sure. <laughs> that, that can be quite instructive as well. And, and, you know, it means that I need to go back to the drawing board. So uh, the, the book has really grown out of the teaching context in, in which people are uh, yearning to engage with, mm. uh, with the the wisdom of this stream mm. of great Celtic teachers and asking, mm. Mm. How, how do we live this today? How do we offer sure. this today yeah. for healing in our lives and world? Yeah, well, let, let's dive in. And, and can, listen, I'm going to read, this is always a bit re- weird, but I'm going to read some of the bits of it to you. <laughs> okay, so we're going we're gonna to start at the beginning because I have quoted this so much ever since I read it. <laughs> and you say this uh, right at the start of the book. We know things in the core of our being that we have not necessarily been taught. And some of this deep knowing may actually be at odds with what our society or religion has tried to teach us. Amen, brother. And then I'll say this. What is unique about the Celtic tradition compared to most other Western traditions is that it cannot be reduced to a set of doctrines or beliefs. Instead, at its core, is the conviction that we essentially need to keep listening to what our soul already knows. I cannot tell you how at odds that is. (laughs) with the tradition I came from and what I learned. What I learned growing up is I'm fundamentally, you know, ruined, spoiled, just in need of saving. I certainly can't trust my own inner knowing, which will just be wrecked by original sin, plus all the sin I've accumulated along the way. So, I mean, that's a fairly radical statement to make. And of course, you're not even saying, and it's only Christians who have a soul who can access this deep. I mean, you've flattened the field right out there. Well, not you, but the Celtic yeah. tradition has. Uh, yeah. So like human humanity has a soul and that fundamentally we know. I mean, do you want to comment on that or shall I just have a moment silence to think about it again? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, well, there there are numbers of things I'd I'd like to pick up on. Um, One one is is a story that I love to tell. I think I tell it in the introduction, uh, probably not uh, not too far into the introduction introduction after the passage that you've just quoted. And um, it's a story that I go back to repeatedly in my life uh, as a teacher, but also in, in relation to what I believe it is we are being called to be in relation to one another. Um, so I was giving a talk in, in a church in Virginia years ago, uh, not long after uh, one of my earliest books was published, Listening for the Heartbeat of God, in which I explore the Celtic uh, conviction that what is deepest in us is of God. Uh, rather than what is deepest in us being opposed to God, uh, which the doctrine of original sin has, has of course, mm. been used to give the impression that, that what is deepest in us is opposed to God. 
And uh, at the end of my talk, uh, a woman, I think in, in her 80s, came very purposefully down the central aisle of the church with a copy of my book in hand. And she was walking down the aisle mm. so purposefully towards me that the naughty boy in me thought, she's going to hit me over the head with that book. <laughs> and uh, I, I was quite wrong. Uh, when she got up to the front, she said, I want to show you what I wrote in this book after reading it. And she opened the, the front cover and I saw that inside she had written, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I so often wish yeah. I had asked her for that copy of the book because she had stated so succinctly, so simply, mm. what our experience is when we hear ancient truth that has been neglected we may never have heard it before. It may never have been told to us. But when we hear it, our deep response is, mm. I knew it. Yeah. And uh, I, one of the reasons why I, I would have cherished having that copy with her words mm. written in, into it would, is that it would have, um, I would have placed it right here on my, in my desk as a constant reminder of the, of the truth, I believe, that our calling as teachers and our calling for one another um, in, in um, strengthening one another, uh, uh, serving one another, is to try to give expression uh, to what the soul already knows. Um, mm. the, and to give expression in ways that truly set free the sacred knowing and sacred depths within one another. And so much of our Western Christian inheritance has been the opposite of that. We've been given the impression that truth will be dispensed, as it were, from above. Um, and we've, we've been uh, discouraged and inhibited from listening deep within. Uh, yeah. Because uh, so many of us have, have uh, taken on board and been haunted by uh, the doctrine of original sin, mm. uh, which has given us the impression that we're essentially ignorant, that we're essentially mm. ugly, that we're mm. yeah. uh, essentially selfish. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yes, this is a tradition that, uh, that believes in prophetically denouncing uh, falseness and uh, prophetically uh, denouncing our capacity for, for wrong mm. and faithlessness. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's a tradition that is returning again and again to what is deepest in us mm. uh, of, of godness. Yeah. Well, you know, I love this and I can't help but wonder to what extent patriarchy uh, plays into this because, you know, original sin is a great way to control people, uh, yeah. uh, especially from an empire perspective. And I know that, you know, one of the things we're conscious of uh, in our podcast is that this is fundamentally too you know, old bald men chatting. And there is there is a lack of the feminine voice, and and you yeah. said, I mean, you took, you quote women, um, and St. Bridget, that wonderful chapter on on her, which I was ignorant of, and uh, you know, you you said this, we need the sacred feminine to be strong again within us, not just in women, but also in men. The sacred feminine holds great energy for new birthing. So I just, I just wondered if you could say something about that because I think that's something I'm really keen for you to address. 
if I could if I could go back briefly as as mm. a way of leading mm. into that to mm. share share with you a great perspective on the doctrine of original sin. Mm. Um, and and maybe maybe you read this in the rebirthing of God, but let, let me mm. tell t- share it with you anyway. Mm. I was I was in in, um, in Virginia again. I'm not always in Virginia. <laughs> I was in Virginia, uh, part of an interfaith dialogue. Um, mm. So there was a rabbi and a ma'am, and I was there as the Christian teacher. Um, I mean, it sounds like the beginning of a joke, doesn't it? It rabbi? does. <laughs> and. Uh, we we were asked at one point by a participant by someone in the audience if if we would speak about the doctrine of original sin, and um, I mean th- this is not this is not a Jewish problem and it's not a Muslim problem. This is this is a, a Christian problem. Um, I mean the Jewish tradition and the Muslim tradition does does not believe that that what is deepest in us is opposed to God. Um, but uh, the rabbi was the first to respond, and he said, original sin, um, that to most Jews would mean that that was really creative sin. That was really original <laughs> sin. <laughs> and uh, at that point, I thought, thank God, thank God for interfaith Great. dialogue. Excellent. Yeah. Here this, this rabbi had a room full of Christians, primarily, uh, laughing about this absurd doctrine of yeah. original sin, and, and I, yeah. I would say more than absurd, I think it's also perverted. Mm. And mm. One, one only has to hold a newborn child in one's arms to know how absurd and deeply perverted this way mm. of thinking is. Um, mm. I regard the, the births of my four children as, as the most sacred moments of my life. Mm. And uh, in their faces, I could see something of the light of the one from whom we all come. And Mm. in their skin, I could smell something of the freshness of life's origins. So the way this doctrine has been used, especially from the fourth century onwards, and we need to ask lots of questions about, Mm. (laughs) was it a coincidence that this doctrine was uh, formulated in the fourth century, just when Christianity got into bed with empire. Mm. Uh, we need to ask questions about what was happening mm. in the fourth century. And this doctrine, I uh, like many of the doctrines formulated at that point in time, were, were convenient to empire. Mm. Coincidental, that. <laughs> yes, that's right. Uh, because the empire doesn't want to be told that what is deepest in every human being is the sacred and mm. is the, the wisdom of the divine. Mm. Empire wants to dictate, control, exploit. So um, along with that, of course, part of what we see happening in, in the fourth century uh, is the subordination of the feminine uh, in, uh, certainly in, in culture, but also in religion. And chapter one in the book is looking at one of the first historically mm. recorded teachers in the British Celtic context, Pelagius, a much misunderstood mm. and maligned mm. teacher. Uh, but one of the things he was criticized for doing uh, in Rome mm. in the fourth century when he arrived from Wales was uh, he was uh, criticized for spending too much time with women, mm. uh, teaching them how to read and to interpret the scriptures. 
so already by the fourth century, the place of mm. women had been so subordinated within our religious tradition that it was regarded mm. as unacceptable. Mm. And uh, what Pelagius was doing in Rome was typical of what was happening in the young Celtic Christian tradition. Mm. Uh, and that is a place of leadership often for women. And Bridget of Kildare is a very yes. beautiful, beautiful example of that, which I give in chapter two. Mm. But also, uh, in addition to the, um, the vision of uh, women in leadership and, and the belief that we need this balance uh, within our communities, uh, there is a celebration of the uh, of, the, of both the masculine and the feminine expression or face of the divine that is to be looked for, released, nurtured, celebrated as deep within us all, both as men and as women. Mm. And uh, I treat uh, Bridget in chapter two as uh, like an icon of, of that sacred feminine energy of the divine that mm. is deep within us all. And uh, by that, I'm, I'm referring to that energy of the divine, that, uh, that capacity of the divine within us, uh, made of God, that invites union or that attracts interrelationship rather than separateness. Hmm. And, uh, you know, we, we've been living through a, a time in the Western world that has often been dominated by shadow forms of masculine power. Hmm. Uh, which has uh, arrayed itself against the earth and against the, the feminine. And uh, the celebration of the earth and the celebration of the feminine uh, go hand in hand in the Celtic world. And, it, and it's that uh, re recovery of sacredness of earth, sacredness of the feminine, that I believe we are so urgently in need of recovering now. Mm. If, if we are to... Um, move out of this uh, threat to planetary existence that we're in the mm. midst of. Mm. Listen, I, I want to carry on talking to you about this. There, there's so much to go through, and clearly we're not going to have the opportunity to talk about the whole book, uh, which is uh, a great pity to me. But on the subject of sin, I just want to say this from your chapter on uh, uh, Alexander John Scott, he, um, and he, he, in reference to sin, um, he said, given... His belief in the sacred interrelationship of all things. Scott defines sin as being out of harmony with what is deepest in the earth and in one another. I think we wrestle with this word sin and, you know, don't know what to do with it because we don't want to throw it out because we know instinctively, I think, or deep from deep within, that it's a very real force. But we haven't found new ways of, I think, really defining sin. And I saw this as something, you know, written by someone a while ago, but as really helpful. So sin as being out of harmony with what is deepest in the earth and in one another. Yes. I mean, I, I'm forever looking around for etymological origins of words. Mm. And uh, one of the the, the roots that I'm, that I'm very interested in and think it would be helpful generally for us to be more attentive to is the etymology of the word sin in our mm -hmm. English language. It comes from the old high German root sunda, S-U-N-D-A, which means to sunder. Um, and uh, our sinning, I believe, is, is about our sundering 
of our relationship. I mean, when when I'm false to you, mm-hmm. uh, when I, when I uh, am sinning against you, I'm sundering. I'm cutting apart uh, w- what our essential relationship should be. The, the harmony between what is deepest in me, which is of God, mm. and what is deepest in you, which is of God. And living in relation to that harmony uh, is the opposite of sundering the relationship mm. Or, mm. Or, or acting in sin or faithlessness to what is at the mm. heart of you and all of all things. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I just found that so helpful and then the other thing that i sort of come up against i mean i I haven't had a chance to tell you i'm a i'm a funeral celebrant now i'm no longer in ordained ministry for reasons we won't go into now but um one of the things that i see a hunger for is you know kind of a faith that is a bit grown up and makes sense of science that isn't opposed to you know the new discoveries and and you Quote John Scotus, and I can't pronounce this, Eriogenes. How do I say that? Uh, well, I pronounce it Eriogena. Yeah. Okay, Eriogenes. And, and you say a, a striking line in that chapter that his vision was not so much a theology as a cosmology of the sacred. And I let for joy at that bit because, you know, I'm a great fan of Brian Cox. And I honestly think I have more in, more in common at times with Brian Cox and his wonderful sense of wonder at the yeah. universe than I do with, you know, a lot of kind of religious people, but he's, yeah. he, I mean, he's quite open about um, his atheism, although he, you, you know, he's open to science. So he's open to that being questioned, which I, I, I rather like his humility and the way he holds his atheism with a bit of humility. So, but, but this idea of bringing together theology and cosmology seems to me to be so important to modern people to people today and yeah i just wondered if you you know you finding that with with the people you're teaching or yes yes absolutely i mean i think to speak of a cosmology of the sacred uh is one way of avoiding the 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 dualism that has so dominated a lot of our western world and a lot of our western religion and culture and that is a, a tragic split between the divine and the human or mm. between spirit and matter. So uh, to speak of a cosmology of the sacred is, is to make it clear that we're not just speaking about sort of soul or spirit as opposed to body and the physical. It's to see uh, spirit and matter always as inseparably woven together. And I think one of the very beautiful things about someone like Harry Eugenia, but about many of these teachers, is, is their sense of the vastness of the mystery and, and also the intimacy of the mystery. So uh, to, to speak about the cos, uh, a cosmology of the sacred, yes, is to stand in a sort of wonder at the interrelationship of the entire universe, uh, but it's also to be attentive to the the parallel of the outer universe and that is the inner universe Mm. of of the human soul and the human mystery uh, which is as um as limitless as the outer universe is is boundless indeed and i think astrophysics and quantum physics are sort of you know saying that um i think there is a real convergence going Mm. on between Mm. uh, new science and 
and what I would call new ancient spirituality. That is yes. spirituality that, that I see myself as part of, that, that's trying to utter again some of the ancient spiritual insights uh, of, in, in this mm. case, of, of Celtic mm. wisdom, that I think parallels can be found in all the great mm. traditions. All of the traditions have, in their wonderfully varied ways, uh, been, been saying that uh, matter comes out of spirit and that these, are, these two are not to be torn apart. No. And, uh, and well, let's talk about that a little bit more. I mean, I think sometimes it can feel like, you know, perhaps we're jumping on the green bandwagon. And I think we want to say, no, we're not, because there have been prophets talking about the sacredness of the earth for so long. And even like last century, I, he did a chapter on John Muir and I was struck by this. You know, he was saying everything is in essence spirit incarnated in flesh, in leaves, in rock. All these varied forms of matter are simply portions of God, wrote Muir. They are all of the God essence. And I, I just love that. It feels like poetry, doesn't it? But it just resonates as so true. And I think we call this panentheism, not 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 the dog is God, but the essence of God is in the dog. Uh, uh, do you want yes. to say anything more about that? It's a very important distinction to make. Mm. And mm. in the chapter on uh, Teard Chardon, uh, chapter seven, oh, yes. yeah. I, I tell the story of, of young Teard, uh, who grew up in, in a French Catholic context, and he describes, and I don't think he's unusual in this, I think that what he describes is the child's way of seeing, and that is a light-filled universe. Uh, but, but I suppose what's unusual in Teilhard is that this way of seeing uh, continues, and he, he sees a, a shining deep in all matter, and so much so that he begins to fear as a young uh, adolescent sort of French Catholic he begins to fear that he's slipping into pantheism and, and, and um, pantheism simply is derived from the, those two roots, pan and theism, all things uh, being God. Oh. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the turning point in his life comes when he realizes uh, that it, it's not pantheism. It is uh, the mystery that he's caught up in in, in terms of an ecstasy and a desire to adore this light that is deep in all things can be described as panentheism, that is the divine in all things. The, the, mm. the that I see shining in your eyes is the divine shining through you. Yes. And it's the light that we can look for in every living thing. And I think this is one of the major challenges of Christianity, it is perhaps the greatest challenge of this moment in time. And that is, will we see the light that we revere in Jesus as an expression of the light that is deep in all things? Or will we continue to say that that light is essentially foreign uh, yeah. to uh, the light yeah. of life that is deep in all things? Well, I, I wanted to to come back to Christology, if I may, <laughs> because on page 176 of your latest book, <laughs> forgive me, but this is good stuff. So I just want to get it right. You said this, the doctrine of the incarnation 
teaches that God was born in the flesh. Yet what has the church done with this radical teaching center of its faith? Instead of allowing it to point to the oneness of heaven and earth, the union of spirit and matter in all things, the marriage of the divine and the human in all people, the church has said that it is a truth that applies only to one namely Jesus, and that this one is an exception to humanity rather than the revelation of the deepest truth of humanity. I love this. I've just got one more bit. The word revelation comes from the Latin revolere, which means to lift the veil. In the Celtic world, Jesus was seen as lifting the veil to show us what we have forgotten, which is not a foreign truth, but the most intimate of truths, the conjoining of heaven and earth deep in the matter of our being. I would edit in a round of applause there if I knew how to do that, but that's the next department. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, you talk about a deep knowing that resonates when it hears truth. I mean, that's that's what's going on for me when I hear those words. Yeah. You know, yeah. Jesus wasn't an exception. He was. He is the example of what it looks like uh, yeah. to live in harmony with our divinity. Yes. Uh, yeah. Ah, well, yeah, I don't know whether you want to comment on that. I've got a couple more bits I've got to go through with you. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm so glad you read out that passage because I think that's one of the, uh, one of the deep offerings of this mm. stream to Christianity at this moment in time. And, and again, it's, it's calling us back to deep strands in our tradition. This mm. isn't sort of, these aren't sort of suggestions coming out of the blue. It's, um, it's about remembering uh, ways of seeing that, that, are deep in, that are deep in our Celtic Christian inheritance and that we can find in strands of Eastern Christianity as well. Thank you. Well, listen, I'm conscious of your time and our time. Um, there's hope for this world, I think. And, and, you know, from George MacLeod, um, the chapter on, you did on him, to know that spirit and matter are interwoven, that heaven and earth, the divine and the human are in, inseparably intertwined is to know also that what we do to matter matters. In the Celtic world, to adore the divine is to reverence the human, to love heaven is to cherish the earth, and to celebrate spirit is to honour matter, and is to do all these things with compassion by bringing the heart of our being into faithful relationship with the heart of one another's being, and allowing the sacred into relationship of all things to guide us and to inspire us in how we live and act. I, I see that as a manifesto for the church. Yes. Um, that is being ignored, perhaps, sometimes. But I see it as a manifesto for my life, whether I'm part of institutional church or not. And I know that you've recently stepped down from the ordination of Church of Scotland, haven't you? And what yeah. uh, can I ask you a personal question on that? Um, yes, absolutely. Do you, do you, what, why did you do that? And, and what do you hope that will the ripple of that might be. Mm. Yes, th uh, thank you, Joe. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to speak about this. Thank and, you. Uh, well, one of the things I'd, I'd want to say first uh, uh, is that my relinquishing of ordination, which I, I did uh, about a year ago, uh, was in no sense uh, an act of judgment mm. on, on, on those who have not relinquished their ordination. Yeah. 
some of my best friends in Scotland mm. and throughout the world continue to be ordained ministers. Mm. And I admire um, what they're doing in their communities mm. in terms mm. of nurturing their, their people. And I admire the connections mm. that they're often making between faith and action mm. uh, for justice and for care for the earth. So uh, I want to be always clear mm. that that my relinquishing of ordination was not a, an act of judgment against others. It was first and uh, foremost uh, a realization that I needed to do this for my own integrity as a teacher. And uh, it was a realization that, that w what I hold most dear um, in, in my beliefs and commitments and, um, and my uh, commitment to action is the, the themes that I explore in the book of the sacredness of the earth and the sacredness of every human being. And uh, I came to a realization that, that these deepest and dearest convictions in me are not reflected in the creedal statements and mm. statements of belief in the church to which mm. I belong. Mm. Uh, so I found myself asking, why, why am I flying uh, under these colors. Mm. I mean, why, why the title reverend? And I realized it was not, it was not a fit uh, with integrity. And I needed to be free from that, that, that sort of confusion between a statement that I had made as a young minister and being mm. ordained and where I am now. Mm. And uh, there were some particular circumstances related to it as well, which are very related to, to my dear friend and brother, Rabbi Nahum from New Mexico. Mm. He was with me in Scotland. We were in a Scottish church and some things were said during the sermon uh, that led me to uh, very nearly to get up and tell, tell the preacher to stop. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank God I, I didn't do that. Mm. I don't think that would have been the right mm. way forward. Uh, but on, on that occasion, I chose not to stand up and say, stop. Um, what you are saying is dishonoring my rabbi, and it's dishonoring the people of every other religious tradition, because what was mm. being uttered was, was an exclusive claim to, mm. to truth um, mm. on the part of the Christian teacher. And of course, that is what, what we mm. confess in our creedal statement. Mm. And, mm. and is it coincidental that, that the mm. creed, you know, that we so often keep going mm. back to is a fourth century? Yeah, sure. uh, Just when Christianity had become religion of empire and associated with power. And I remember on, on that day, I was so upset uh, uh, feeling the offense against my sort of Jewish mm. brother and his wife, um, but through them, the offense that, that is often mm. spoken against people of other traditions, people of other faiths. Mm. And um, I, I took them outside the church at the end of the service, thinking I, I need somehow to comfort them. Uh, and uh, when I began to speak, I began to weep. And all I could say was, uh, I'm so ashamed. And they took me in their arms and I wept. I was thinking I needed to comfort them. Uh, it was they who mm. comforted yeah. me. And afterwards they said, um, this is what we've been hearing all our lives. 
from Christianity, that we all mm. need Jesus um, in an ex- sort of exclusive, defined sense of confessional mm. faith. So that was a, a, a critical point in mm. my journey of realizing I wish to stand with those who are in spiritual exile. Uh, and I'm, I haven't renounced my faith. Um, oh, no. There was no sense of having left the spirit mm. behind me. Mm. Mm. Uh, and I think one of the great things about our Judeo-Christian inheritance is that these these are prophetic traditions. These mm. are religious traditions that have always made room for the voice of the prophetic, speaking from way out on the edge, calling for change at the center. Mm. And that, that's not to lift myself up as a mm. prophetic figure, but it is to say that we need prophetic voices we need um, both the two things that I think the mm. does, and that is to denounce what needs to change and to announce um, a vision of the way mm. forward. Oh, thank you. Well, listen, John Philip, I am so grateful that you came on our podcast. Thank you for taking the time. I just want to leave you with one question. I often ask our guests, and it's a tough one, I'm not going to lie, but mm-hmm. I want you to imagine, if you will, there's a listener out there who is faithfully attending their church, but they're feeling like they don't know whether they believe anymore. They don't know whether anything they do makes sense. They're getting a little bit weary of the times of worship and all the rest of it. And they're wanting some hope that faith is real. Can you, have you got a word or encouragement to them to keep going? (laughs) Yes, um, absolutely. I, I, I believe we are living in a time of, of hope. Yes, uh, it is a time of, of, of great uncertainty about mm. where the journey is going to lead us. Uh, but uh, I, I, I believe that this is a moment of tremendous hope. Uh, mm. we, we are being invited to see through nearly every great discipline of thought uh, the interrelatedness of life, this essential interwovenness of everything mm. that is being. Uh, uh, and uh, we, uh, Thomas Berry, the eco-theologian who, who I've been a greater appreciator of, before he died, he said about this moment of time that we're living in, he said, we are living in uh, what he called a moment of grace. And that is we are being given ways of seeing our relationship with the earth and our deep relationship with one another. Uh, We are being given ways of seeing the likes of which humanity has never known before. And then he goes on to say, very importantly, moments of grace are transitory. In other words, will we meet this moment Will we serve this moment of grace and be part of a deep transformation of the human journey and the journey of the earth? Or will we miss this moment? That's the choice that we're in the midst of. Mm. And uh, I'm so grateful for being a son of the Christian household at this Mm. moment in time. Mm. Yes, it isn't all sort of neat and sewn up in in terms Mm. of knowing where we're going. But I believe that this is a, a vital time of choosing to to meet this moment and to give ourselves in love uh, for the well-being of one another and the earth and th- that to me is is the 
the heart of, of the Christian household's gift, mm. uh, to love one another and uh, to love the earth as we love what is deepest in us of God. John Philip, thank you so much. We're so grateful for you and your your wandering ministry <laughs> of bringing hope and truth uh, that resonates with the deepest truth within us. So thank you. Thank you for your time. And if people uh, want to get the hold of uh, Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, they, it can it can be found online and, and yeah. found through your favorite bookstore or oh, um, great. or just yeah. online. Yeah, Harper Harper Collins UK is uh, who it's with in, in the UK. Wonderful, John Philip. Thank you. Bless you. Blessings to you, Joe. Well, there we are. That was a uh, that was fascinating stuff there from John yeah. Philip Newell, ranging from. Well, all kinds of things. Well, there was there was a good bit of turd talk in there. Well, that, which... that, that was uh, that was unexpected. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm so glad he mentioned that. I mean, he came over. I thought it was quite serious, but he's actually he's a very jovial, jocular sort mm. of chap, you know, from times. Mm. But you know, yeah, he came over quite sort of serious and thoughtful. It's like he's quite a thoughtful person. I thought. Well, I, I imagine <laughs> he is. Uh, oh yeah. From there. <laughs> Um, but no, terrific stuff. I mean, you can, you can see why I was enthusiastic about it, can't you? Yeah, well, it's it's absolutely your kind of stuff, isn't it, really? Um, no doubt about it. And, and uh, <laughs> I mean, it, uh, the turd thing was... <laughs> it did include the classic line of... I'd like you to give you a bit of background on the turd. And I, thought, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's not a line I expected ever to hear in our podcasts. I'll be honest. Um so I think rather than sort of go into anything now, we're going to pick up on all kinds of stuff from that next week. And, and you know, I'd like to chat a bit about the book. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Know, which you, you very kindly sent me. Mm. Um, and, uh, and you know, and so we'll, we'll pick up we'll pick up on all that. Next we week. will. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on it as well. As as always, um, send a, an email to joe at midfaithcrisis.org. Love to hear your feedback on what John Phillips said. Yeah, thank mm. you. And if you have had any uh, dreams or visions of, yeah, of of an unpleasant nature like that, um, please don't share them with us. Thank you. <laughs> One is more than enough. <laughs>